It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book, Close Encounters of the Worst Kind, and the captivating memoir, Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. You know, um, April is Autism Awareness Month, which makes this show that, we're, that I'm about to do um, very pertinent. Jude Morrow knew that Jupiter had 79 known moons, and he knew where the swimming pool was located on the Titanic, yet he didn't know how to connect with his beautiful son who called him Daddy. In Jude's book, Why Does Daddy Always Look So Sad? He gives a candid view of life and love through the eyes of an autistic adult who went from being a nonverbal and aggressive child to a hardworking and responsible father to a non-autistic son. Growing up autistic, Jude Morrow faced immense challenges and marginalization, but he was able to successfully, though not without difficulty, finish university and transition into a successful career as a social worker and eventually parenthood. Those with autism can have difficulty understanding the world around them and can find it hard to find their voice. But in this poignant and honest memoir, Jude defiantly uses his sound voice to break down the misconceptions and societal beliefs surrounding autism, bringing hope to all who live with autism, as well as those who care for someone on the spectrum. Jude views his autism as a gift to be shared, not a burden to be pitied. And as he demonstrates through his honest recollections and observations, autistic people's lives can be every bit as happy and fulfilling as those not on the spectrum. So I hope that your ears are perking up and you are ready to hear this fantastic story. It's very inspirational. Good morning. Oh, well, it's not morning for you, Jude. Jude is in uh, Northwest Ireland. What, what time of day is it there? Uh, good evening, uh, Randy, from here. It is uh, <laughs> three minutes past six here. Okay. All right. Okay. So good evening, Jude. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Hello, Thank Randy. you for being my guest. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, thanks so much for the lovely introduction and, and the kind words. Thanks so much. Oh, um, you're absolutely welcome. Well-deserved. So you you have Asperger's syndrome, which is one of the autism spectrum disorders. Um, Yes. But in your your book, you say that you are high-functioning and that there is a downside of that. What is the downside? Well, well, at the time, whenever I was writing the book, I would have... uh, associated the label of, of Asperger's syndrome. That's what I was diagnosed with. That's what I identified with. But now I would say that I'm an autistic person, just like uh, everyone else. One of the barriers I want to break down with the book is that 
is the notion of a high-functioning autism. Um, I would very much prefer the term autistic in the absence of a learning disability because in my book, I am a qualified social worker. I have my own house and I have my own car. But the very notion of a huge life change, like uh, becoming a father, which was uh, pertinent to my own story, caused me to uh, function very on a very, on a very low level and that I needed a lot of comfort, help and support from my parents and sister during that time. Hmm. A common autistic trait is that um, you see things literally and empathy does not come naturally to you. What does that feel like? How would you describe that? in a world where other people are seeing things, you know, in other ways, perceiving things differently. I just want to break down one of, one of the largest myths regarding autism and the autistic spectrum as a whole is a seeming lack of empathy or empathy not coming naturally. I can speak for myself and say that I, I do feel empathy. I can understand the, the situations of other people. It's how I've manage so well being a social worker but this is where it does become difficult is that it varies from person to person for example with me I would have quite a flat tone of voice I'd have a, a quite flat facial expression and perhaps the the demonstration of empathy is difficult the feeling of empathy is there but whenever I try to ex- express it whether it's verbally or through my uh, body language or my own nonverbal cues, it can be that little bit more difficult. But it's certainly not true that autistic people do not feel empathy or that uh, empathy does not come easy to autistic people. But what can uh, not come naturally to autistic people is an expression similar to what other people may perceive to be empathy directed at them, if that makes sense. Yes. You said that you could not differentiate between happiness and sadness. This is when you were younger, and um, this is described as being neurotypical. You were not able to understand how you were thinking or feeling, but when you were shown cards with facial expressions, um, it helped you communicate more positively. So um, what you're saying is, so that you did have empathy, but what did it feel like? Happiness and sadness felt the same to you? You couldn't tell or you couldn't label it one way or the other. It's that what I, was it like? It's, it's that I couldn't necessarily label it. The best way that I can describe it, and it, it's very much persists today as a grown man. As I, I'm as autistic now as I was whenever I was born. And that the best way I can compare it is if one thinks of um, – like a, like a garden hose, uh, one end's connected to a tap or spout, and then the water comes out the other end. Um, with, me, with me and with other autistic people who can identify with us, that um, kind of that emotional output can compare to like a kink in the hose, is that it just doesn't come out too naturally. And then over time, the pressure builds up and it can, it can burst, whether that's in a positive way or a negative way whether it's a, an outpouring of affection and love or whether it's a, an overwhelming feeling of defeat or pessimism, you know, it can come out in, in either way. It's like an emotional overload that can get trapped in the process of thinking it and expressing. 
you know, those two very distinct points in the, the thought journey, so to speak. So that's really the best way that I can compare it. It's like, it's like a kink in the hose pipe of emotion. So how did, how do you overcome that? If it's still there, um, what do you do to overcome that kink, to get through it, to push through that or past it, I should say? Well, I suppose what I can do is I can recognize that it's there and whatever's within that. I've always been a prolific writer, not always creatively, even just uh, writing down how I feel on a notepad. And, you know, if a situation doesn't uh, come to my understanding very easily, I can write it all down and then come back to it later, as opposed to maybe trying to force the, you know, the thoughts through to get rid of the kink, as opposed to recognizing that it's there knowing that it's there and writing down how I feel and how I saw certain situations and maybe in time clarity might come and then I can revisit what I wrote down and make sense of it and, and, and give myself closure in that way. And that's something that I would recommend everybody do, autistic or not. Mm, that's a good recommendation. So um I'm going to get to the part about your son because I know that's a big part of your book, but I just wanted to give everybody a feel for what your challenges have been uh, first. So um, emotional processing, you say, for people with autism is the single biggest challenge they have to face. And, So then you said in your book, when someone you love becomes emotional in your company, you can become confused as to what you should do. It doesn't come naturally. And um, no one, unless they walk in your shoes or or have this syndrome, this this spectrum, be on the spectrum, um, they'll never understand how difficult that is. So what happens when someone becomes emotional in your presence? Well, for me, inside my head, it's very difficult. There's a lot of things that can come naturally to people, whether to use touch, whether to use comforting words, whether just to use silence. And a lot of those things buzz around in, in my mind. And one example that I used in the book is whenever the matriarch, really, of, of my entire family, which was my grandmother, my mother's mother died. And whenever my own mother was grieving the loss of her mother, I just felt so inadequate and that I didn't know, really know in what way in which to comfort her. I didn't know whether I should hug her, whether I should give her space. And, you know, I suppose it's, it's very difficult trying to make that decision on my own. And if, if it were to happen now, it's, you know, I, I would even ask, as a, you know, can I give you a hug? Do you, you know, or even try and say some words to try and, and ease the situation. I suppose it's not, so much emphasize in trying to interpret my own feelings, but to try and understand the feelings of the other person and to act in such a way that can, that can help them. That makes sense. So if you existed in a world, all autistic people, would it feel strange to you? Would you have any meltdowns? Would you have any problems? Would it cause you anxiety? Or is it just the fact that trying to fit into a world with people who, don't, who are not on the spectrum um, is really what the issue is? <laughs> I always say if the world was full of autistic people, there would be no wars, there would be no famine, there would be no social injustice. <laughs> the, the leaders in every field from 
arts to science have all been shown to either definitely have been or almost certainly autistic. And I suppose the world that I want is that I don't view myself as having a disease, disorder or syndrome by any sense. I simply process information in a different way to what other people would. The accepted figure at the minute is one in 59 people are on the autistic spectrum. And as opposed to the one in the 59 in this case being me, I don't want to see uh, to be seen as being disordered or broken compared to the other 58. I want to be seen as as being different to the other 58, and that is perfectly okay. And I think that's really what the problem is um, in today's society when it comes to autistic people like me, is that there's so much emphasis and pressure to be like the the other 58, the other 58 people, which uh, isn't possible. And instead of trying to make the one out of the 58 become like the rest, is to celebrate and cherish that difference. That's, that's so wonderful. It's so great to hear that. And, and I'm so glad we're talking to you about it because um, you have such a healthy perspective on this. Um, Absolutely. So, and I suppose... Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> because what I, what I want in, in, this, in this world we live in, as crazy as it's gotten recent months, is that I, I want people to embrace and accept uh, neurodiversity, which is a more socially acceptable um, model for viewing autistic people. Um, and, and in the modern age, a lot of it has been pathologized. And uh, people for too long, people have viewed being autistic as something that is in need of a cure and in need of change and in, in need of, of betterment. And, you know, I want to lead the charge in saying that, you know, autistic people should be celebrated for uh, the gift that we have instead of being highlighted for what is perceived to be by the rest of society as shortcomings. That's what I want is that to, to feel accepted and, and loved for my differences instead of feeling inadequate or in receipt of a disorder for not being like everyone else. And that's absolutely wonderful and fair. And you should, you should um, reach for that. You should have that message. Um, you um, you said that, you know, I know at some point you were given medication and therapy, and then you somehow got it in your mind that you would be emotionally stronger if you stopped the medication and the therapy and because you didn't want to be analyzed and, and you wanted to retreat into the safety of your glass box. Um, what kind of medication were they giving you originally? The- the medications that I had originally were uh, antidepressant and anti-anxiety medications. Um, any uh, doubt or fear or any change of routine was something that was a trigger for anxiety for me. And it wasn't easy to work with um, in my own mind. And I, for so long, refused to accept the, that I had other mental health problems associated uh, with being autistic and I denied that for so, so long, and then eventually I, I did agree and, and, and start medications, which definitely helped me. I can't say otherwise. And just after Ethan was born, I did sort of adapt into a routine that my days were quite structured. Ethan's days were quite structured, and um, as, as many will read in the book, that uh, I decided at that point, well, maybe 
uh, needing medication is something uh, of the past. And my view of medication was that is that it, it gets a point someone from a point A, which is a low point, to point B, which is a high point, and it's not, whenever you get to that point they're no longer required. Similar to if someone breaks a leg, they'll have a, a cast put on their leg, and when the leg is healed, you take the cast off. I suppose that's the same way I viewed uh, the medication, whereas I know now that in order to keep me at B and to prevent me falling back down to A, that uh, medication is, uh, for me in my case, is, is something that's necessary and that has helped me greatly. Mm. Um. So you're um so for you control of um, control was really important, your desire to feel comfortable and safe. And that structure got upset many times because we can't have such a clearly defined sense of structure in our life because there's all kinds of variables. So what happened when you would get into a place where you weren't prepared or you, and it made you feel uncomfortable? What kind of feelings would you have or what did you experience? In my mind, whenever things weren't really going my way, it was like I felt uh, whatever it was uh, uh, slipping away from me, whether it was a work deadline or whether uh, it was... Um, for example, buying my own house, uh, that what I, I would, what I would do is try and regain control of the situation as much as I could uh, with all variables, ones that were in my hands or even out of my hands, and that I would try, <clears throat> albeit destructively, to try and regain as much control of the situation as I possibly could because in my mind, my sense of order was of the paramount concern to me. And any disruption to that did cause me to become quite distressed and I felt that inaction was admitting defeat and whether that was a negative action or, you know, lifting the phone and making that phone call that I probably shouldn't have made. In my mind, because I took some sort of action that I was somehow regaining control back, which was a very negative way to view things at that time. Mm. So let's talk about Ethan, this wonderful, wonderful little boy that came into your life so unexpectedly. <laughs> um, oh, he did. <laughs> yes. Tell us about what happened when you found out that your girlfriend was pregnant. You weren't really married, and I don't know how um, how committed you were. But what did you think, how did you feel when you found out that she was pregnant? Well, it was certainly a shock, Um it was not something that was in my life plan at that time. And I suppose I wanted to know how things would go, what the impact on me would be, what fatherhood would look like. And I, what it did was generate so many questions that I felt compelled to ask all the time, whether it had been to Ethan's mother or my own mother. And I just had this you know, burning desire to want to know what the future held for me. And I, I'm not really a go-with-the-flow person, Randy. I can't really sit back and, and let things happen. I'm very much a, a go-getter. And I had that attitude a lot stronger back then. 
And I got to a point where I was asking so many questions and fearing the unknown so much that I alienated practically everyone uh, around me. And whenever Ethan was born on the 23rd of July, 2013, all the worries and fears and anxieties that had built up over the preceding months to Ethan was born, whenever I held him for the first time over in the hospital, it was like all of those worries just completely and utterly vanished. And we really bonded that day because he was a stranger to the world that he'd just come into. And in a lot of ways, so was I. That is so interesting. Um, And for the first few years of his life, he had the perception that you always looked sad. Um, You explained that it was because you couldn't allow your sense of order or your false character to be compromised. What did that feel like for you? It was was very, very difficult because in my mind, I knew that I had to exert a, a happy and confident persona so that Ethan would feel safe and protected and loved but as Ethan kind of graduated through his early developmental milestones as a child like liking different foods waking up at different times you know every day for me was so different and I couldn't really cope with that it was so so hard and although we had a lot of happy times and we did a lot of amazing things we actually traveled we went on holidays we um, played lots of games we had a lovely lovely home uh, that I got for both of us but the real sense of order from my life seemed to disappear and I was left feeling that my goodness I'm really losing control of of my life and whenever I was in my early 20s my view of being autistic was that it was something for little children and whenever you think of autistic children a lot of people and their societally pre-programmed way will think of a small child arranging things in a corner somewhere and I was that child that was me and whenever I was in my early 20s and even whenever Ethan was young the fact of being autistic just didn't creep in for quite some time even then but it was that sense of order it was that that sinking feeling of every day for me is different and I don't know how I'm going to manage this. You know, when I think about um, being in a state of anxiety for myself or just not having a great day where I'm sad and I'm, a- and I'm asked to put on a smile or pretend I'm happy, to me that's very uncomfortable. So if you're having to work past your uh, inner feelings in order to present a, face to the, a certain face to the world, was that difficult for you? Uh, yes, and, and it still is. And- I back then I didn't really have a healthy view of my own emotions and and myself as a person because um, I, I grew up as an autistic child I was the, the the child that no teacher wanted to teach that no child invited to their birthday party I just constantly mm-hmm. felt different and my perception of myself was that I was this damaged diseased strange child that nobody really wanted to associate with. And that's, I, I, back then, I didn't view my wonderful. Or- mm. you still there? <clears throat> Ethan, are you still there? Call dropped. Okay. Um, let's let him connect, reconnect. 
this is such a fascinating book. Why does Daddy always look so sad? And it really does. Um, it really does give you a clear view into what someone with autism is experiencing in every possible way. And it also gives a clear view of how much they can work through that and have a a normal life. Okay, I'm reconnecting. Okay, you're back. Good, 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 good. I am back. (laughs) I am terribly sorry about that. I don't know what happened. I must have just uh, cut off. So sorry. It's okay. Apologies. It's okay. It It does happen. It does happen. Um. It was, you learned in therapy as an adult to allow others mm-hmm. to contribute and help. Yes. So how was that to implement? How difficult was that to implement? And what effect did it have on your relationship with your son, Ethan? So when you, you learned to relinquish control to him, what, what did that look like? Well, um what I would have done with Ethan is that I would have asked him for he, what, he, what activities he wanted to do to involve him in the planning of our days and weeks and where we went and what we did and mealtimes, trying to uh, give him as much of a say as possible um, instead of <laughs> you know, dragging Ethan along. And also on my life journey, it was uh, making him uh, an equal partner in the business, uh, so to speak, <laughs> and uh, it, it was very, very hard to do that, to relinquish control and, um, and put my trust in other people because I was such a vulnerable child and I did find um, facial expressions and tones of voice very, very difficult to interpret. So as a child, I didn't really know if somebody was joking with me, was being mean to me. or um, So I, I, automa- I developed a protective cynicism over time to protect myself. But this overprotection of myself seriously kept other people out, including Ethan. So when you allowed him to begin to make the choices or you know plan the day, contribute to the planning of the day, it brought you closer? It did. It did. It got us talking more. It got us uh, bonding together a lot more closely. Um, we um, would do activities that Ethan wanted and he felt happy being able to make the plans and contribute and be involved. And for a lot of parents, things like that would come naturally. But to me, it simply didn't. Um, I did have to learn that over time. And whenever I uh, have done uh, live shows, like I, I, I would meet many autistic groups and, and speak at many uh, autistic specific uh, or mindset or inspirational events and, a lot of parents uh, and who are also autistic empathize with me in that, and that because they were so vulnerable as children, it made it very difficult for them to bond with their own children, whether it be they were so overprotective and not wanting them to go through what they went through, or um, simply those like me, specific to my story, there were a lot of scars that had developed in my childhood that deeply affected me as an adult, and that is something that a lot of autistic people can certainly identify with. And I don't want any autistic teens or children now to harbor the same scars as I did, to have the same negative consequences that they had for me. 
I can understand that. Um, so, and you learned in, when you, uh, as an adult, um, in cognitive behavioral therapy, that your issues communicating with Ethan stemmed back to the fear and anxiety that existed in your mind standing in the playground as a child. What, you know, you describe the children playing and you standing there with the teacher. What went through your mind at, the, at that time? It's one of those memories that is so vivid for me. Whenever I went to that primary school, um, and we there was like a playtime outside in this playground. It was a different kind of strand to it because I was at a mixed abilities playground before that. And whenever I was out in the playground, I remember just standing in the one spot. And I have my eyes closed as I speak right now, and I'm standing in it again. And all the sights and sounds are all still there. People running and screaming and playing different games. And it was just like, you know, where do I fit into all of this? Whenever I try and describe uh, the feeling to people who are not autistic, it would be the same feeling as if you and I were standing uh, on, on a pier with water underneath and I'm saying, well, jump in. And then you ask them, well, how deep is it? Is the water cold? Is there, is there dangerous fish in there? Is there a shark in there? You know, all these doubts going through your mind that, you know, whenever I say, well, just jump in. And you can't do that because you need to have the right information first. And that was the same feeling as what I felt. is like, you know, what if they don't want to play with me? What if I don't like that game? You know, what are they doing? And it was just a real confusing time in my life. I, didn't, I just didn't really know where to fit in. And not only did I, did I not know where to fit in, that also brought a sense of shame in me, even though I was only five years old. Because what a lot of people may believe is that... Um, you know, with uh, autism, it's an automatic re- reduction in cognition or a lack of awareness of, of the world around them. And that simply isn't true, is that there was a chaotic world unfolding in front of me that I'm very aware of, but just don't know where to fit into it. And it's very, very hard to go through. It's, that sounds so difficult. Um, it, when Ethan was... Um, getting ready to turn four, and he decided that he wanted to have his party at a particular place. And even though you yeah. you say that you love planning and organizing, but somehow you dreaded the thought of this party. What was it about this situation that you were dreading? <laughs> well, uh, giving, uh, the, giving Ethan the reins of arranging his own birthday party was uh, – was a big step for me, I have to say, because with some situations, and one of them being like children's play areas, I can find them difficult. And that same feeling of that I had in the playground of different children playing, like uh, it's like a big sensory overload for me. Like there's different smells, there's different sounds, there's lights flashing, there's different textures when you walk upon them with your feet, going from like a wooden floor to a carpet to a spongy children's play area. A lot of things that people take for granted are things that I greatly, greatly struggle with. And whenever Ethan picked his particular venue, I I didn't like the choice, but I realized that, you know what, for Ethan's sake, I'm going to have to recognize that in order to keep Ethan happy, that he can't simply conform to every single thing that I want every single time. So that's something that I had to go through. It was a it was a challenge for me. And 
Um, at one stage, a lot of people, including my parents, said that, uh, 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 yes, dude, you are autistic, but the world doesn't stop for you either. So I suppose I have to take <laughs> that on board too. Mm. Uh, so you, by this point, you had gained some tools for for dealing with your um, your sensory hypersensitivities and how to manage them. So um, what did you do to get through that day or that, you know, this few hours of that party? What exactly did you do to cope with that? Well, what I did is I developed a mindset beforehand that I was definitely going to get through it no matter what, no matter how, pain, how painful it was for me. I was going to get through it for Ethan's sake because I needed to be a strong, independent, confident, unhappy man in order for Ethan to develop a good relationship with me. And I didn't want to let him down at his party. I didn't want to be uh, someone that would generate questions in Ethan, such as where has daddy gone or why is daddy not here? Um, you know, why is daddy sitting on his own with his hands over his ears staring at his shoelaces? I didn't want to give Ethan that image um, at such a young age. And that was what spurred me on. I wanted to be uh, happy and proud and show him that I was happy and proud of him, despite my fears, limitations, and self-doubt, as that what had to happen was that love had to win the day. And on that day, it did. <laughs> Excuse me, and you say it was very exhausting for you. I, I imagine that would be exhausting to have oh, to overcome fears constantly. Oh, yeah. I mean... It, it was, and I, I, I will give your listeners a huge exclusive that is not included in the book, that after that particular birthday party that is outlined in the book, I got home at around 7.30 p.m., and I was asleep at 7.32 p.m. and slept until about 9 a.m. the next morning. So but that's how exhausting it was. It, it was probably the most exhausting day of my life. And I have ran marathons. I've done a lot of health and fitness endurance events over the years. But I never remember anything being as exhausting as that particular day. <laughs> because you're, because you, were so, you so wanted it to be perfect for your son. Um, oh, I you know, know, and I know. I yeah, I mean, I, I have children. I know what that feels like. You want you want your children to have the best experience possible, and you will do anything for that. It's remarkable, yeah, though. Um, you know, mm-hmm. It's remarkable what you've ever come to do that. So well, yeah, in your book, you, I, I, oh, go ahead. In your book, you mention autistic masking. What is autistic masking? I knew I was different from that moment, from even before I stood in that playground holding the teacher's hand, not knowing where to fit in. I always knew that I was different. I was able to stand back and watch other children mix with one another and look at their body language, their facial expressions. And I always knew, even from whenever I was five years old, and I can even visualize in my head the certain children, I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. And that, gives a real, real feeling of self-loathing, anxiety, and hurt. And whenever autistic children grow up, trying so much to be like everyone else is what autistic masking is. Because whenever I was young, well, one, I didn't actually know that I was autistic. 
And the second one is that I always knew that I was different. I didn't really have the answer why, but more so in my teenage years, I just wanted to be like everyone else. I didn't want my fears and anxieties to become apparent to the point where other people could pick it up. So I had to develop a a, a different public facade in order to um, preserve what I believed to have been my own status within the school at the time. So I didn't want to be forever known as the, you know, the different kid, the odd kid that, you know, the societal prejudices of autism would speculate. So I suppose had to develop my own character over time that I used in certain situations to not highlight what I felt to be where my shortcomings then. Yeah, I'm trying to like, I'm trying to feel what that would feel like. <clears throat> so what's interesting though, is that you were completely aware of what you needed to change. Um, yeah. And, and you had ways of changing it, but it wasn't you being authentic. No, it wasn't me being authentic. And what I love trying to do is that I love trying to encounter situations where I can explain what being autistic feels like to a non-autistic audience. And this is another example that I will give is, for example, if you, um, if you are walking toward a jacuzzi with a lot of people in it and you get into the jacuzzi and it's unbelievably hot, it's so boiling, you can feel your skin going red, but you can't show to anyone else that you're struggling with the heat. You have to uh, keep going with the party. You have to keep laughing, keep smiling without the boiling water affecting you. That's probably another way that I can explain it to you is to, uh, because what you don't want to do is you don't want to admit defeat and say, oh my goodness, that water is far too hot. I'm getting out and running away. You don't want to do that in front of your peers. So I suppose it's the only other way that I can describe it. So would you describe yourself as having a normal adolescence and teenage, um, normal adolescence and teenage years? Did you have a group of friends or at least one close friend? Yes, I did. I did have I did have friends whenever I was younger. I I did spend a lot of time at home, though. I don't know if it was disproportionate to what is a normal level of uh, staying at home, but I did then join a youth group. It wasn't an autistic specific youth group. Those things didn't really exist whenever I was a teenager. This is back in the early two thousands, and those groups didn't really exist. And I joined a group here in my city which was a cross-community, um, you know, cross-religious, you know, cross-gender youth club, you know, male, female, Catholic, Protestant, that kind of format. And I really, really enjoyed it. I made friends for life there that I still have, that I'm still very much in touch with. And whenever I first self-published, Why Did Daddy Always Look So Sad, they actually hosted my book lunch. So I did meet mm-hmm. friends for life, and they uh, accepted me totally for who I was. And they knew that I had a a gift of organization and perseverance and whenever I set myself a goal or a target I went for it relentlessly with the blinkers on and achieved a lot of good <laughs> outcomes and uh, through, through that group I got a lot of good outcomes and it was while attending that group that I decided that I wanted to be a social worker and it really was a, a turning point for me uh, uh, in my life and I suppose in that way Yes, uh, at face value, I did have uh, normal teenage years, whatever normal is. 
and I, I had I had really really happy times, but that burning feeling of not being like everybody else still very much existed. I hadn't accepted myself yet, but more like I was trying to exude a character that people could accept, which was what was the difference was. And that in itself is exhausting. So I would imagine that, you know, I mean, if I had to do that, for me, being authentic is so important. And I, when I can't be, it's just, it's absolutely draining and exhausting. So, um, so uh, you know, I, I can imagine that probably after social gatherings, you probably needed to go home and regroup and just kind of sit with yourself, which is something that I do because I'm empathic and I'm also um, introverted in a sense. I, I like I need to be quiet. I need to have my space. And that's different than some other people, but it's who I am. So I can really relate to that, um, you know, having to do that. And I always need to come home and regroup. Is that kind of how you felt? Yeah, it is. And uh, to a degree, it's, it's still very much the same. And it's actually very funny about what situations I need to regroup for and what I don't have to regroup for because for this interview, Randy, I decided to have a bit of a different strategy. And normally I would have a lot of notes. I say to every interviewer uh, in the past that although this is your first time doing this interview, this is my third or fourth because I rehearse things, I practice things, I perfect things before executing them. But with this interview, I actually tried to have a bit of a change of tactic as in to have a bit more of a free-flowing conversation. And after this, I will probably need a lot more rest than if I were, for example, (laughs) giving a speech to a group of 5,000 people. Because with the speech with 5,000 people, I have prepared. I've got the lighting correct. I've got the pictures that I want to show correct. I've got my hand gestures correct. How many steps I'm taking on the stage correct. And I just go ahead, do the plan, and then afterwards, it's like nothing happened because I prepared for it so much. So, uh, yeah, um, it's kind of funny how in what situations I have to rest for and what I don't. So I'm working completely off the cuff at the minute. And, uh, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm starting to feel it now. It's setting in a bit. But <laughs> I think I'm holding out okay. <laughs> We're getting there. We're almost done. And and you're doing great. You really are doing great. Um you know, even if it, it does, it's not showing that it's, you know, that it's wearing you out. <clears throat> well, here's an easy thing to talk about. So <clears throat> you like to stare out the windows, and that kind of was an ongoing theme throughout <clears throat> throughout the book. What does that mean to you, to stare out of a window? Staring out of windows, to me, it was like a protective box. It was that I can look at the world outside and look at it unfold from the confines of a safe space. Um, I, I still felt involved, even if I was looking at it from the outside or from the inside looking out. Uh, I would have uh, stood at my living room window on in my family home and looked out at children playing in the streets and having fun. And Although whenever I stood and looked out, from one perspective, if you're from the outside looking in, is that, you know, gosh, that little boy up there is terribly lonely. But... For some strange reason, I, I felt pretty involved. And even whenever I, I travel to meet autistic groups, I, I always have a, a bit of a, a ritual in hotels where I stare out of my hotel room window. And I just, uh, it's like a, a connection that I build. You know, it's like a, like a survey of, of my, my surroundings. 
and it, it, it grounds me. Even in my own home, whenever I get up in the morning, I always take a couple of minutes just to look out of my bedroom window just to get a to get a, a feel for my surroundings before uh, mm. going out in, into the world myself. It's, it's something that's very hard to explain. It's something that is uh, it's a difficult feeling to articulate in words, especially in an interview. But it's just a, a, like a habit or a ritual that I do. Is I just love to stare out of windows um, because it's safe. Um, and I can still see outside as much as I could if I were outside myself. Okay. You know, I can understand that. It's it's almost like a grounding um, tactic. And, you know, it's not a bad thing at all. Because it is, it wakes us up to the environment we're about to enter into. And I think that's a good thing, as a matter of fact. I think it wouldn't be bad for us, us all to look out the window and, and survey where we're, we're about to be or, you know, what the world outside looks like. Because most people walk through life and never look at anything. Yeah, you know, exactly. like. Um, Right. And you do. And you, you, you're aware. And so like the example that I use is, so I, I grew up in, um, in the mid East of the United States and um, we had four seasons. And so, you know, there were trees, all the trees would eventually lose their leaves and, you know, we had snow and we had all those kind of things. And then I moved to a tropical climate where I have palm trees in my front yard <laughs> and in my whole neighborhood. Yeah. And it used to seem so exotic to me when I would take trips to Florida, I would think, Oh my gosh, those palm trees are so exotic. Now that I live here, <clears throat> I have to force myself to look at them and say, you live in a place with palm trees because otherwise it just becomes, it's just normal. And I wouldn't even look. <clears throat> yeah. It's, uh, I think being aware of your surroundings in any case, is very important, and it's um, what what I what I did learn subsequently because a, a lot of uh, psychiatrists, psychologists have read my book, and that it's a very common thing that I did. It's it's like a it's like a primeval uh, defense mechanism for one in fear to survey their surroundings, and everybody mm. does it every single day. For example, if you were to uh, book a holiday somewhere. You're going to Google it first. You're going to take a look and you're going to see if the resort we are going has a, like a, a wee webcam that you can look around in. And, um, and those things exist for that very, very reason. Is that when, whenever people are unsure of an environment or situation or location, um, they will survey it first. And even people who would tend to be um, a, a bit more anxious or a bit more organized, for example, people like me, is that, um, surveying a particular area or a location, um, whether it's your own street, your own house, your own neighbourhood, then that does bring a sense of calm and relief and like a like a connection to your surroundings that if it doesn't come naturally, it can come to you through that. Hmm. Interesting. <clears throat> you know, I mean, I relate to so many of the things that you say, um, <clears throat> being a sensitive person, and uh, I'm, I'm energetically sensitive, so I pick up on a lot of things, which can be difficult in this world. Uh, and because there's a, lot of, there's a lot of sensory input. So, for instance, if I'm in a place where there's 
a whole lot of, lot going on, I am very uncomfortable. So it's not unlike some of the things that you experience. So I can relate to that. Um, <clears throat> one last question. So what does happiness mean to you, to be happy? Being happy, it's all about accepting yourself. That's the one thing I say to everybody. Because whenever I accepted that I was autistic and accepted entirely who I was, I did become much, much happier. And no matter what environment, no matter what society you live in, when one accepts who one truly is, that is the real, real key to happiness. And that can apply to so many situations, whether it's uh, race, sexual orientation, nationality, no matter what it may be, whenever one accepts their own self and loves themselves for who they are, no matter what way society views it, because with me being autistic, autism is viewed as a burden by a lot of sections of society, and it isn't. And I developed a lot of ideas that society feels that I am not good enough, that I am too odd, I'm too different. Basically that uh, I lack empathy, I'm not aware, and um, it's too difficult a world for me to survive in. And I just want to say for myself and for all autistic people, you absolutely can. And I know I don't speak for every autistic person on the, the autistic spectrum. I know that whenever intellectual disabilities are a feature as well, things can be a lot more difficult. But even still, every autistic person is gifted in their own way and can find inner happiness when they accept who they are. And that's whenever I became ultimately happy, whenever I accepted and loved myself for who I am. And I did realize that anybody who was genuinely important in my life, it didn't matter that I was autistic, they loved me anyway. You know, I don't know if you realize how profound <clears throat> that statement is, um, and especially to my listeners, because um, a lot of my listeners have been through uh, abuse, narcissistic abuse, and um, they have learned that they have been conditioned to believe not to love themselves, that to love themselves is selfish. <clears throat> and many, many of the people that I work with feel strange about that fact, you know, that, and they don't know what it's like to love themselves. And I just think, you know, and, and I always tell people, accept yourself, accept your quirks, accept whoever you are. You, everybody is different in this world. Everybody is unique. And when we try to compare ourselves to other people, we will always fail and look down on ourselves. We have to accept who we are and the gifts that we have and what we bring to the world. And I just love that message. That is the most important thing that you have said today. So I, I really want to thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Absolutely. Everybody has to, um, has to love themselves. It's not selfish. And I, I, I would have known, actually, whenever you were speaking about working with victims uh, of abuse, I mean, that's something that I did uh, that I've done for many, many years as, as a social worker myself. And, you know, back, uh, you know, coming full circle from your, the early question about empathy, and the one thing that I would say I can definitely empathize with people on is the fact that I didn't love myself for what other people thought that I should be. And victims of abuse uh, in nearly every circumstance feel a sense of shame that they're letting someone or a certain group of people down. 
and that's uh, th- certainly the way I felt and I know how horrible that it feels and um, the the only cure for that was to accept and love myself and whenever I did I flourished to the point where I am now live on the air talking about my my uh, shortcomings <laughs> that I had for so long and I actually wrote about it in a book uh, that is now um, on sale to the whole world to read so that's how far I've come and if a- a- anybody can learn to love themselves um, if I can anybody can and that's I know a lot of people do say that and it is a bit of a cliche if I can anyone can if you read the book then yes you can you can it's it's a journey the journey to self-love is difficult for most people um, it's extremely difficult for some people actually probably more people have a difficult time getting to self-love uh, than those you know than others um, but it is the key to happiness and I completely agree with you and so many um, just so many life issues and stressors um, are alleviated when we can really love ourselves and, and um, believe in ourselves so Jude, um, Jude you're, you're a huge inspiration. I am just so grateful that you were able to be with me today and talk to my listeners and tell your story. And um, So your book is Why Does Daddy Always Look So Dad? So sad. So sad. So sad. <laughs> why, why does Daddy Always Look So Sad? And um, is this available worldwide on Amazon and all those yes, places? Yeah, it's available in all major online retailers. I know the world is having a, a bit of a crisis with deliveries at the minute, so probably the Kindle version <laughs> is the best bet. Uh, it was released by Beyond Words last week uh, on the 7th of April. Um, um, reach out to me as well. I love talking to people. Uh, I, I love sharing my story and why does daddy always look so sad, and I love hearing other people's as well. So um, I have... Um, a large Facebook following at Jude Morrow author and uh, reach out to me at judemorrow.com as well. I love speaking to people. I love meeting people. And uh, now is as good a time as any to uh, read stories, connect and and share your story as well. So I really encourage everyone to do that. Great. And I'm just going to spell your name so people know where to look. Jude, J-U-D-E, Morrow, M-O-R-R-O-W. And your website again was? JudeMorrow.com. Perfect. Okay, there we go. I already spelled it, JudeMorrow.com. Um, so if you are um, if you are on the spectrum, believe you might be on the spectrum, have children, or are working with anyone who is, um, I urge you to read Jude's book and to contact him um, for. Any really, he can tell you anything about this. He's lived it all. <laughs> so um, you're remar- you're remarkable, um, and you did really good today. Um, so go take a nap. I know you need it. And <laughs> um, oh, I will. And, I will. Maybe more than a nap, but uh, I uh, yeah, I'm, I'm quite I'm quite pleased. I, I set myself a challenge today. I thought, you know what, I'm going to try this interview as a discussion and uh, try at my portray a bit more warmth and a bit more of the, the real Jude Morrow on the air. So, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely uh-huh. delighted with it, uh, apart from the, the, the getting cut off part. But, um, I mean, other That's than that, okay. I'll, I'll, uh-huh. I'll, I'll take this as a victory. <laughs> 
you know, I mean, a lot of people get cut off, so you're not the only one. It just, it's just something that happens. You know, when you do live, um, live radio or live podcasts, which I do, um, things happen, you know, and so I'm, I'm cool with it. You know, it's just life. It's just life. And I like it. it is. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but, but yeah, you know, and, and I think you may have had sort of a sixth sense about this interview and, um, and my interview style. So you could not have prepared for this. Um, we just had to have a discussion and it worked out beautifully. Anyway, um, stay well, be well. I hope your son is well. I know he's, he's sequestered with his mom right now, and that's hard for you. But, yeah. um, but be well. It's been really, really great talking to you, Jude. Fucking thank you so much and allow me to take the time as well to wish you and all your listeners and team um, uh, good times ahead, health and happiness in this hard time too. Thank you. Thank you. Be well. Okay. Take care. And, you know, you can listen to this episode. You, if, if you want to hear how you did, you can listen to the episode. I sent the link to your um, publicist. So uh, if you need it Ooh. again, I can provide that. Okay. All right. Oh, have a wonderful day. Yeah. Have a wonderful day. Okay. You too. Thank you, Randy. <clears throat> Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. We are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions, you can email me at loveyourlife at randyfine.com. Check out my website, randyfine.com, and go to um, the shop page where I have Narcissistic Abuse Platinum MP3 Educational Series. There's a series of five um, MP3s that you can download, and uh, I worked really hard on these, and I really hope that you will Um, download them and appreciate them. Let me know how you feel. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.